Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. today is the start of an epic five-parter. Why five parts? Because there's just so much to say about it, and it is barky, lungy behaviors, also known as reactivity. I'm primarily going to be focused on dog-directed reactivity, but everything I'm telling you can pretty much be applied um, no matter what it is that your dog is barky lungy at. With the exception of the kind of second prong in my three prong approach, which I will get to in a minute. So first we need to define what we're actually talking about. Um, dog trainers kind of loosely use this term reactivity and they mean all manner of bark, lunge, growl, snarl, snap, usually on the end of a leash, usually directed at other dogs, sometimes towards people, but typically directed at living creatures that dogs are typically or kind of expected to be social towards. So that's other dogs and humans. Although certainly these behaviors can manifest towards all fast moving objects like bicycles and cars. Um, as well as wildlife or maybe other domestic animals like horses. Like I said, though, I'm going to primarily focus on dog-directed, barky, lungy stuff um, that typically happens on leash as well. This is a huge problem for sport dogs because sport dogs need to have a pretty high level of functionality around other dogs. And... A lot of the dogs that come into my programs both worked up and hidden potential, so that's kind of opposite ends of the same spectrum, um, have issues with other dogs. A lot of these dogs do, and a lot of them appear to have other issues that are kind of performance related because they're unable to do what you're asking them to do because of their high level of concern about other dogs and the fact that there are simply other dogs everywhere in the environment that they're in. And so when these behaviors are a problem, I think that um, it's so important for all of us to see it as a problem and not just band-aid it and actually help the dog heal and get better, especially if we expect them to function around other dogs. So that's why the series is five parts. This is kind of the intro part where we're talking about what it is that we're talking about. And I'm going to give you an overview of my three-pronged approach, um, as well as some of my thoughts as to why these behaviors are happening. So let's, let's start there. Why is this such a problem? It is uniquely, um, not entirely uniquely, but a little bit uniquely um, a problem on the continent that I live, which is um, North America. It's less of a problem in certain other cultures. Um, 
if you haven't yet, check out the recent episode of um, The Dog Real Talk, which is with the Tromplo founder. I hope I'm saying her name right, Agnieszka, Agnieszka uh, Janarek. I'm probably completely slaughtering that with my American accent, but um, she recently interviewed Michael Shikashio about his observations of aggression in dogs um, over the world over. And he does see that the United States is kind of uniquely plagued with barky lungy behavior. And... I've traveled the world and this is my observation as well. It's not that these behaviors don't exist elsewhere. It is that it is the primary thing that pet dog trainers are called to work on here, which isn't necessarily the case elsewhere. I'm going to give you an example. When I, when Leslie and I were teaching in England um, a couple of years ago, we were teaching in... Um, just kind of a community center kind of building and it was surrounded by farmland and every day at break time or at lunch all the participants would go take their dogs on off-leash walks through these farmlands and when Leslie was teaching and I wasn't I took myself on some long walks through the farmlands on my own and I saw a lot of off-leash dogs when I did this and I think that just culturally that being widely available um, in the English countryside as well as as well as Wales um, makes a huge difference. I'm going to talk about why I think that is in a later episode, but um, I think that the reason we have such bad leash reactivity is because our dogs are always on leashes. And that kind of seems like it doesn't make sense, but if you've seen that um little viral video of there's two dogs on either side of a gate and they're just barking and attacking at each other and rah, 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 and then the gate is automatic and it's slowly opening and as the gate opens and this threshold between the dogs disappears the dogs disengage their aggressive behaviors and begin to engage their socially appropriate behaviors they sniff they look away they shake off they walk away and it is like magical and i've seen it in so many different iterations from different parts of the world that i have to say wow the barrier seems to be the problem there right not so much anything about these dogs or their genetics um which genetics are a thing but they're not the only thing, and we'll talk about that in a second. So I think it's less of a problem worldwide because people are less obsessed with leashes worldwide. I'm just going to be honest with you on that. I think that um, dogs, a dog in the English countryside is going to have more of a robust socialization experience if he is walked out on those farm trails every day than a dog that lives in, you know, United States of America suburbia has a backyard and gets walked on a short leash on concrete around the block um, twice a day if he's lucky, once a day if he's not. Um, and so I think that's really, that's an important part of it. I think culturally we produce a lot of these things. When I was in New Zealand, um, I witnessed something kind of similar. We were, I was teaching in an equestrian arena and we were right off of a popular trail. And at lunch, I'd go out, all the participants would go out and they'd walk their dogs off leash and I would walk with them and it was really fantastic. Um, and I mentioned that it would just, something like that would never happen in the States, even if 
the trail were off-leash legal, which it wouldn't be in the States. Um, and somebody, one of the, one of my New Zealand um, friends told me something that I didn't know, which is that in New Zealand, um, you're not allowed to sue somebody for personal injury or accident. So what that means is if a dog attacks your dog and hurts it, um, you can't sue the owner of that dog. And I could be, you know, getting some of these facts wrong. So if you are from New Zealand and I'm incorrect, please let me know so that I can fix it. But that's what I was told on that day. Same deal if your dog runs out in front of a car and causes a, a, an accident or a problem, the driver of that car cannot sue you for that. So that alone produces an entirely different culture in New Zealand versus the United States. That alone, I think, changes a lot. The United States, uh, man, lawsuits for personal injury are big business, right? And that's why personal insurance is huge business. And um, it's just a very different culture. And I think because of that, which, and this is a little bit ironic to me, but I, I think that it's related. I, because of that, people in the States are more afraid of injury or accident. And so they're more afraid of something bad happening. And I do think that we're kind of trained to be pessimistic when it comes to dog-dog interactions because all we hear about are horror stories. And horror stories exist. I'm going to tell you one in a minute here. Um, they exist. They do cause problems. I'm not telling you nothing bad will ever happen if you allow your dog to say hi to other dogs. I am saying that it is more likely for your dog to be socially appropriate if you allow for and facilitate more novel dog interactions for your dog, especially the kind that are off leash. Now, genetics are also very real. And in my world, which is the sport dog world, primarily dog agility, I am definitely seeing some dogs whose genetics do not set them up to be dog social, period. Um, I'm not going to name any breeds because I tend to get in trouble when I do. But there are some breeds that are rising in popularity um, whose genetic makeup has just never been, um, just dog sociability has never been prioritized for these dogs. And so then their ease of socialization towards other dogs is going to be lower. And then when you meet that low ease of socialization with the culturally widespread lack of socialization that the sport world tends to um, advocate for, you get problems. You get pretty big problems. So, you know, ask any agility competitor how they plan to socialize their puppy and they usually do not plan to allow for many dog interactions at all because they're afraid of bad things happening or bad behaviors developing. And that's kind of problem area number one. And then if they've got themselves one of those breeds whose so ease of socialization to other dogs is low anyway, that's problem number two. And now we have recipe for disaster. And that's definitely an area of concern. So I take a three-pronged approach now to these dog-directed barky lungy issues. And I'm going to cover each in detail in their own episodes. So the first one is desensitization. I take a desensitization approach um, with all of the dogs that I work with 
who exhibit these types of behaviors no matter what they're, they're directing those behaviors at. Notice I did not say desensitization and counter conditioning. Those two things really often go together in my field, but I'm going to talk to you about desensitization as a standalone procedure, and I'm gonna explain why I think it is best um, much of the time when I go into detail on that episode. The second prong is remedial socialization, and that is just as it sounds. It is helping these dogs to develop good social skills by exposing them to other dogs in a, a very carefully orchestrated way. We can't teach dogs good social skills to other dogs. We can teach them good social skills to people because we are people but we can't teach them how to talk to other dogs. Only other dogs can teach them that. And they, we require something really specific of these teacher dogs. And these teacher dogs um, are not as rare as you would think. All dogs can teach another dog something about social skills. Just like kind of aside from exposing your child to a straight up psychopath or sociopath, um, all humans that your child meets can teach them something about their future um, interactions with human beings, right? So you don't necessarily need to only expose your kid to perfectly wonderful kindergarten teacher adults. They should meet a variety of adults. They should meet a variety of other children, a variety of ethnicities and family types. This is important. And it's not just important that all of their experiences are nice. What is important is that they learn they can handle themselves if their experience is not nice. And this is the exact same fact for puppies and dogs. So what matters here is to cultivate the interactions for your dog during these remedial socialization opportunities to help them develop their own social skills. You can follow the same guidelines roughly if you are socializing a puppy as well. And I'm gonna go into that in depth in its own episode. And then the third prong is a DRA procedure. So a differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors procedure. I find a lot of people in my field are only focusing on this area. And I think that's why they're only getting so far. I think it's super important that all three prongs get addressed um, rather than just, just the DRA area, which is really easy for us to do, to just select for behaviors that we want other than those aggressive behaviors and move forward. I'm gonna talk about what behaviors I think are smart. I'm gonna talk about why I focus on DRA rather than maybe uh, DRO or DRI, and I'm gonna talk about what those are. And I'm also going to give you some specific procedures for this because just go forth and reinforce the alternative behavior to me is not a specific enough plan for you to follow. And I would love it if you could take the information in these episodes and go forward and help your own dogs and help your client dogs um, better. Because I think that there's just too many dogs who are experiencing social, iso social isolation in their lives because this isn't being done well enough, in my opinion, by the positive reinforcement-based community much of the time. 
I'm not saying all of the time. I have an enormous respect for all of the people that are working in my field, that are in the trenches, working with these pet dog owners, trying to help everybody get better. I want to help you help them get better because what I have learned from working in the sport dog world where the dogs have to have a very high level of functionality around other dogs is information that can help you because there's a huge difference between working with a family whose labradoodle barks and lunges every time they see another dog because they learned how to do that in dog daycare and it's perfectly fine for them to follow a cookie past every other dog that they meet for the rest of their life on their leash walk around the expensive city park that they live near, okay? That's different than my dog needs to be able to function at Sport, where there are hundreds, literally, of other dogs around who are all cracked out of their minds and there are no real barriers around the ring, right? And I've even seen dogs cut the corner of the ring, you know, chasing a Frisbee on their way out to the field. Things like that. I mean, big stuff that these dogs have to deal with. It's very different. But I think that, you know, the protocols that I've developed to help these dogs would really well serve your pet dog clients, too. So couple of stories here. Number one, um, and I'm going to talk about Iggy in depth as I do so often, Iggy was my first personal dog that I would put in this barky lungy category, uh, the kind of quote unquote leash reactive or dog reactive category. It was a huge bummer when she uh, was four months old and puppy kindergarten finished and the adult dog class started to file in and a woman walked in with her Belgian Tervuren and Iggy saw it and for lack of a better word, she went apeshit. She screamed and barked and tried to hide behind me and I proceeded to have a meltdown because my four-month-old previously perfect puppy now had the one behavior that I didn't want her to have because it felt so impossible to me to fix. My previous dog Kelso was straight up dog aggressive. Any dog that came within a certain radius would get nailed by Kelso, would get bitten by him. Um, luckily he rarely ever caused damage, physical damage to the other dogs, but it was still a really major problem. Um, he was trained in the old days, so his warning signs had also been effectively punished out. So he stayed silent and stoic until the dog was too close and then he attacked them. So that's why I wouldn't put him in barky lungy category. And I would say if your dog is barky lungy, be grateful for that. Because that means that you see these aggressive behaviors, which they are aggressive behaviors. They all kind of fall on that aggressive spectrum. Um, they're giving you big displays, which means that they're not actually causing harm and they're giving everybody a big warning sign to stay away. So when Iggy started showing those behaviors at four months old, I dove in and I did everything and I did a deep dive and I learned as much as I possibly could. Um, Leslie McDevitt's book, Control Unleashed, had was relatively new at the time and I did a whole lot of work in that regard meaning I utilized the look at that game as well as the there's a dog in your face game specifically for Iggy as well as a lot of my clients. Um, in fact, the Control Unleashed is older than Iggy. I would have to check to be sure, but I think it's more like 15 years old and Iggy is 11. So I had been utilizing it for a while and I put a lot of that stuff to work. 
Grisha Stewart's work was also kind of brand new and emerging at the time. So that's BAT, um, Behavior Adjustment Training. I dove in. I learned a ton about that. I got great, great stuff out of BAT for IGI. And then, of course, I was familiar with good old um, Dr. Patricia McConnell's protocol, Feisty Fido, which was essentially a DRI procedure, so a differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior procedure, the, which was just train the dog to look at your face when they see another dog. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, but all of them were incomplete. And I think all three of those professionals would agree that all of them were incomplete for what I needed. Um, but I had to dig deep, deeper and I will go into the specifics of what has helped her to become not just not reactive anymore, but also socially savvy as hell, you guys. This is my go-to dog when my friends get puppies to introduce them to. She is perfection. Um, and so how did we get there? I'm going to talk more about that in the remedial socialization episode because that was really huge for her. And then I had a client... Um, a long time ago, he's about Iggy's age. So I was working with him around the same time that I was trying to help Iggy. And um, the client's name is Shannon and her dog's name is Cash. And Cash is a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And Cash is kind of that cautionary tale. Um, Ridgebacks need off-leash exercise and they need to run. And also it's kind of culturally not accepted to have them off-leash. Um, a lot of Ridgeback people don't believe that you can train a true recall um, to a sight hound of any kind. And so anyway, Shannon took cash to, and Shannon also lived in a tiny apartment at the time because she and her partner were saving up um, to buy a house. So they took him to a dog park and you guys, the dog park is a nice one. It's huge and full of trails and trees and streams. And it's ideal really in so many ways. And and yet, as a young dog, um, right around a year of age, two Rottweilers attacked him pretty brutally, flipped him, went for his belly, bit his legs. He was severely injured by these two dogs. Um, we're all really lucky that Shannon was, all, was not also hurt in the altercation because she dove right in, um, as we all know we're not supposed to do and as everybody does anyway. So pretty much immediately from there, Cash was being shown um, in confirmation. He started to have problems with other dogs at the dog show pretty much right after that. And his handler was somebody that I knew. And so his handler referred the owners, Shannon, um, to me, Shannon and John. And we dove in. We worked really hard with Cash. And my only... You know, I don't have regrets really, but I do wish that I had known for cash what I know today because I think he would have been more successful. But he was an early success story for me in reactivity because he became a dog that was at least manageable enough that they could walk him because they had to because they lived in an apartment building. And so we focused, um, we did a whole lot of bat training with him. So that's behavior adjustment training. I recommend that you check that out if you're not familiar with it. Um, it has evolved a ton since then. So I was working on the 1.0 version with Cash. That was really good for him and it was really, really helpful. However, it was really tough to carry out 
when Shannon just needed to get him out of the apartment for a potty break and didn't necessarily have a lot of space to work with. So I also taught her a lot of management techniques, um, a lot of which are taught by my colleague Amy Cook in her reactivity management class at FDSA. Things like teaching the dog to do a quick U-turn with you, teaching the dog to put their feet up on something, teaching the dog to eat a scatter of treats out of the grass on cue, things like that. We also taught him to be comfortable in a gentle leader. I don't need to tell you, he's a Ridgeback, he's a big guy. And so the owners needed some control over him in those instances. So we taught him to wear a head collar really comfortably. And so Cash became functional enough to finish his confirmation championship and generally speaking, be walked, walked um, on leash around the apartment building. Fast forward, um, I'm still good friends with this family. Cash is still around and I've helped them introduce several puppies to their household with total success. And Cash has been able to um, allow for these dogs to come in and be a part of his household. He doesn't go, have to, he has a backyard now, so he doesn't have to go out other than, you know, he'll go to the vet obviously and on some other outings that like hiking outings and things like that. But generally speaking, he lives kind of a life of luxury where he doesn't have to deal with his triggers anymore. But I am going to tell you that if Shannon had had to continue to live in the tiny apartment in the city with him, I think I would have had to get smarter. I think we just allowed for them to survive that period of time in their lives. Um, and now I'm interested in having my client dogs thrive. So no more survival. I want thrival. I want, is thrival a word? I want, I want dogs to be able to go on off-leash hikes, on-leash hikes. I want them to be able to go anywhere you want to take them. I want them to be able to compete in dog sports. I want them to be as functional as we can help them be. And Cash's issue started with a big incident and we still got really far. So if your dog was attacked and you think that this is impossible because your dog was attacked, I'm going to remind you of Cash's case as we go. So to kind of recap, I'm going to go through um, in three separate episodes my three-pronged approach, which, which is desensitization, remedial socialization, and differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors. And then my final episode is actually going to be all Patreon questions. So if you're not on Patreon yet, that's patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You can become a Patreon member and submit your questions about reactivity and I will compile a big episode where I, all I do is answer those questions for you guys so that we can make sure um, make sure that I've hit everything from all of the all corners that it needs to be hit from. So I hope that you'll join me for this epic series and I hope that you find it interesting and um, don't miss the other episodes too much before they do come back because this will take us a while. All right, we've got a few Patreon questions for you. One, several people are asking because I said, you guys can Google it and you are and you're not finding it. <laughs> I had mentioned in a previous episode a head halter leash combo product that Leslie and I had picked up when we were in Finland. And I had originally found it by Googling too, but now I can't. But I have good news for you. My friend Christine 
um, at Victory Agility is making them. So, and it's kind of a new thing she's been playing around with. So, go check out her Facebook page. Um, just look for Victory Agility on Facebook and you will find it. And if you would like her to make you a two-in-one head halter leash, you just let her know. Okay, so moving on into some more behavior-based questions rather than kind of retail questions. This one comes from Kristen. Do you have any tips on how to organize and prioritize skill training for new puppies? Obviously, I'm starting with house and social skills, but even those seem a bit overwhelming when I start thinking about all the things. So the first thing to do, Kristen, is chill out. (laughs) Exhale, breathe in, exhale. Um... There is not some kind of magic timeline that we all need to follow, and there are not um, even markers, as far as I'm concerned, uh, like developmental markers that mean the puppy should know this by, by this time. Instead, you're smart to focus right now on what is harder for them to learn later. What's harder for them to learn later is good social skills with other dogs. Um, that's pretty much the big one. And then safety in all places, so meaning Any place that I show up to as a puppy, I learn it's going to be great for me and therefore novelty becomes something that I like. So these are all just socialization things. So I'd refer back to the socialization episode and really dig dig in on that stuff first. Obviously, household behaviors are number one because the thing lives in your house. But that's just daily stuff where you kind of make a plan for how you're going to manage so that unwanted behaviors don't occur and how you're going to reinforce those behaviors that you do like. As far as I'm concerned, that's not active training. It's just kind of husbandry, behavior management um, to produce a dog that you can live with later on. And Then the early things that I like to teach puppies are all about their reinforcement. I want them to know as much about the reinforcers that I'm going to use as possible. So this is where I would teach my puppy to play with toys. And then as soon as my puppy's into toys, I would teach some toy skills, like some toy marker cues and things like that. Um, And then I would teach all sorts of information about food. I would teach different markers but I would I would also teach whatever kind of primary marker or bridge you're going to use like this is when I would introduce a clicker to my puppy um I don't just load the clicker I actually just start using it by clicking behavior and feeding and then you know I would also be just making sure that my puppy is interested in eating food from me in a variety of environments. That's something that I'm going to need for a long, long time. And the puppy's going to kind of dictate the pace here. Some puppies are ready to go and learn more complex skills really early on, and some of them are not. If I plan on using a more complex um, reinforcer, like say a food robot, so a manners minder or a pet tutor or a treat and train, um, I would be introducing that now. And I would introduce my puppy to the concept of the fact that the robot spits out food and that the robot does that contingent on your behavior. So these are all things that I would teach early on rather than specific behaviors. And congrats on your new puppy because she is so cute. Um, Let's see. This one comes from Leah. She says, how should I deal with my dog who is extremely obnoxious to my other dog on decompression walks? Um, She goes on to describe some of the behaviors that the dog is doing, like muzzle punching, ankle biting, 
And she says something really, really important, which is that the dog does these things until the victim starts running and then she chases her down and tackles her. Um, she suggests that there's a sight hound involved. So she also says it doesn't happen on every walk, and but it's enough to make her think twice about taking them together. Is separation the only option, etc. Um, she also asks, will the dog get the hint if I leash her after every incident? And I want decompression walks to actually be decompressing for everyone, but we're all on edge when this happens. So number one, you really hit the nail on the head by saying that the, by basically describing this behavioral loop, which is that um, obnoxious dog uh, harasses, you know, dog B, and then dog B goes running, and then obnoxious dog gets to chase dog B. I've seen this for sure. When the dog, um, when the dogs want the other dog to run and be active and do stuff, they get them to do that by bothering them. So if this is a young dog especially, I would be pairing that dog on walks with dogs that will not feed into that BS. So this is an, an instance in which I will walk that young puppy primarily with adult dogs that will not feed into it, will not play with them, will literally just ignore them. Um, I will certainly walk in and do what I call splitting. So I will just split by walking between the obnoxious dog and the other dog, and then I will feed the other dog. You can teach the other dog to come to you for food when this is happening, not the obnoxious dog, but the victim. And these are all kind of ways that you can make sure this behavior does not get reinforced because the problem is that it's being reinforced by the victim dog. Um, and, you know, if we really want to get technical here, the victim's behavior is being reinforced too. So the running away behavior because the victim experiences momentary relief um, from the harassment. It's a fine line, and if I were on the walk with you, I might be able to give you more information. But essentially, no, I do not allow these behaviors. Um, but mostly it's about shaping future behaviors by who I take the dogs on walks with and where we go. And you may also just take that dog on his own walks until you feel like he's actually satiated and then start to take him for walks with the other dogs unlikely for the obnoxious dog to get the hint if you put a leash on um, every single time. Certainly something you can try. It's a hypothesis. It's a punishment procedure. Um, so it's something you can try. I've not had success doing it. It's something I've tried, to be honest. Um, what I have the most success with is kind of orchestrating who the dog goes on walks with, especially when they are younger, and then splitting, which is essentially walking between the two dogs. And I will post videos of splitting in Patreon. So thanks for your question, Leah. All right, and last one for this recording is from Elizabeth. My 11-month-old retriever can at times be ambivalent about food and a little picky. She be, she's been known to consider a treat before taking it and at times isn't as enthusiastic about food as I would like. High-value treats like seared steak, hot dogs, cheese, tuna work better, but I don't want to use high-value treats for everything. What suggestions do you have for increasing her food drive slash enthusiasm for working for food? Thank you. So this is a really common problem and it's a bad one. It's a problem because we need our dogs to really want our reinforcers. And if we continue to up the ante and we continue to just make the reinforcers better and better, we will back ourselves into a, into a corner with that and we don't want to do it. The first question I would ask is, is this new? So you said the puppy's 11 months old. 
Has the puppy been like this all the time or is this a newer behavior? Because if it's newer, I'm going to blame it on hormonal, hormonal development. I'm going to blame it on something else. And I'm going to say back off of your food training for a minute until the dog is back interested in food. If it is not new and it's been this whole time, then I need you to take a strong look at your behavior. So are you hovering over this dog when, he, when uh, she's eating? Are you being in any way, shape, or form weird about food. <laughs> um, this sounds weird, you guys, but I've found so, so many clients who turn their dogs off food by being too obsessed with whether the dog eats or not. Like, just leave them alone. Um, I would also use jealousy to my advantage here. So I would train another dog for the food. And when this dog comes over and is like, hey, I think I want some of that, then you can start to train that dog. I would not just continue to up the ante on treats. I would use not low value, but just kind of regular food most of the time. Low value is not smart. Something the dog doesn't actually want is not smart. But being, you said it's a retriever, I don't know what kind. Um, if it's a golden retriever, I would really have a strong look at whether this dog has food intolerances or food allergies. I would do that no matter what the breed, but Goldens are pretty notorious for these things. Um, and so I have found a lot of dogs do not work well for food until they're actually being fed the right diet. And the reason is they kind of feel yucky a lot of the time. Um, I've been through this with Goldens. I've been through it with German Shepherds really frequently. So once we get the dog on an appropriate daily diet, suddenly the dog is hungry again. So that's also something to think about and I hope that these tips helped. Thanks you guys for your questions. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.